record in 2 Samuel chapter 21. We thank the Lord for all that has been said, all that has been done. Again, my eyes were brought to tears and I just wept as I thought about what is happening all around us with sex trafficking. And I thought about all of our youth, how vulnerable they are in many ways, and how many of them are searching for their sexual identity, and how the world is saying that it's values verification or it's personal choice. And those are the messages that they're hearing, and the church is silent. But this morning, we were not silent. And so we are aware that we can be a difference maker, and our church will be a part of what God is doing to help rescue young women and young boys out of the clutches of Satan through, safe, through, through sexual trafficking. When the Philistines, verse 15, were at war against David, and his servants, they went down, again, they went down and they fought with, against the Philistines and David grew faint. Nishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giants, the weight of his bronze spear was 300 shekels or eight, eight pounds, was preparing to slay David. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid, and he struck the Philistine, he killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, you shall not go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Father, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Fight. until you can't fight anymore. The men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Recently, I read an article about a man named Sebastian Sparks. These are the captions of that article. He gave birth, he breastfed, now he wants his son to see him as a man. He gave birth, he breastfed, now he wants his son to see him as a man. According to Shabazz, at birth an obstetrician delivered him and handed him to his parents and assigned him the female gender as his sexual identity. Birthed into the world, looked at the plumbing, and the obstetrician said, congratulations, you have a girl. According, the person he later married was born a male and had that gender assigned to him. You have a boy, congratulations. Neither believed that they had to remain the gender assigned to them by society. So they both have undergone multiple surgeries to become who they now define themselves as. The person Shabaskin married that was formerly a male, this gets confusing, is now transformed into a female. And the reason he and she believed that it was okay to become something that they had not been assigned, because in their minds, the definition of their sexuality had been determined by society and not themselves. And so if society can decide your gender, 
you can decide not to accept what they decided by redefining yourself. Amen? Now, in case you didn't notice, I drive a Hyundai Sonata. And it's parked outside right now. But um, I think I'm going to decide that I don't want to accept the manufacturer's assigned name for my car, and I'm deciding to make it a Ferrari F60. <laughs> and uh, although it usually goes for about $2.5 million, I got mine on the cheap. If you leave God out, you will believe and do anything. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, they knew God, but they exchanged the knowledge of God for that which was not God. And instead of worshiping the creator, the creation began to worship the creation. And God said, I gave them over to reprobation. I gave them over to a seared conscience. When your conscience has been seared, you will do anything that your mind tells you to do. The Word of God says that there is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end of that way is the way of death. Like gender identity, biblical manhood is under attack. The world has two basic ideas about what masculinity means, what manhood is. Let me just share what many women think when you talk about masculinity today in light of the Me Too movement that probably is now uh, the most popular uh, political a movement that is afoot. According to women who think of masculinity today, the first thing that comes to mind is abuse. Uh, another thing that comes to mind is arrogance, male superiority, chauvinism, the good old boys network or club, double standards, what's good for guys, and uh, my daughter better not do it. I'll hurt her if she did it. He can do it with many, but if she does it with one, then she's classified as something other than that which is morally upstanding. Am I right about it? So abuse, arrogance. Here's another way uh, it is often thought of when you talk about masculinity to the women that many of you are considering marrying. They view that as authoritarianism. Me, Tarzan. You, Jane, you listen, I talk, I make the decision, I'm the man in this house, I'm bigger than you, I'm smarter than you. Now, we all know that ain't true, but for many women, when we talk about raising men who are masculine, it has a negative connotation. Now, here's how uh, some men, or many men, think of ma masculinity today. And here are three Bs, and these are not original with me. Ball-filled. That's one B. Ball-filled. And this has to do with physical prowess, your strength, your toughness. What can you take? Can you take a punch and still stand? So the ball-filled, when we think about men, we're talking about their physical capabilities. Then billful, how much are you worth? What's your bank account? What do you own? What do you drive? Where do you live? Billfold. And then the other thing that defines masculinity to many men is the bedroom. How many have you slept with? How good are you between the sheets? And unfortunately, that way of thinking, the ball fill, your billfold, and the bedroom is not only the mindset of people outside of the church. Many men in the church define their masculinity by those three Bs. In the church, what I have discovered, and 
it was really interesting to me. I listened to sermons. I'll read sermons. I'll, in terms of my research, and one of the guys I stumbled across, I noticed that he had a lot of following, 800,000, uh, 86,000, 75,000. But when it came to, to the subject of the role and responsibility of men and women, nobody reads that. And so in the church, here's what their two existing views theologically about what manhood is and what it means to be a woman. Here's how it looks in the church theologically. There are two predominant views. There's what's called the egalitarian view. And the egalitarian view basically says men and women are equal. We were created in the image of God and his likeness. We are saved by the same blood of Christ where there's neither Jew nor Scythian or Greek. We're all one in Jesus, and we all have the same indwelling Holy Spirit. Therefore, when it comes to the role and responsibility of men and women, there's no difference. Whatever a man can do, a woman can do, and most often in the mind of the egalitarians, a woman can do it better. And then there is the, compatib- the, uh, the uh, second view, and the second view is the, not the egalitarian view, but it is the complementarian view. And the complementarian view is this. Yes, men and women were created. We are equal, image of God, saved by the same blood, indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But God did not create us to be the same. We are distinct, and he has specific roles and responsibilities for men and women that God doesn't change. Somebody say amen. Amen. God created both. the, The view basically is God created both men and women to complete each other, not repeat each other. If God wanted carbon copies, he would have made all of us the same. But God didn't make us to be carbon copies. I believe that men and women are created to complement rather than to be copies. Fathers and brothers, as we talk today from the word of God, I want you to hear me. I want you to understand that if you are going to be the model of masculinity and manhood, it ain't just about your plumbing. It ain't just about the bass in your voice or how much you worked out in the gym. But if you are going to be the kind of person that God describes as a man in the Bible, you must be willing to fight until you can't fight anymore. We are in a battle. And in many instances, we are losing it because the majority of African-American homes in particular are, are families that do not have father figures. And so I'm saying to you, and I'm pleading with you today, as we look at the word of God, would you join me in the commitment to fight until you can't fight anymore. Second-mile Christian fathers fight until they can't fight anymore. Now, here are four characteristics, which is, and the reason that I'm going to give you characteristics are markers that will demonstrate to you when you are looking at a real man, when we are looking at masculinity, because the Bible doesn't define what a man is or masculinity. It describes it. And so I want to take from the word of God, exegete from the word of God, characteristics, ladies, when you are in the presence of a real man, of a mighty man, of a Christ strong man, not just because we wear the T-shirt, but because we actually are, these are going to be the four characteristics that mark us out. First of all, men that fight until they can't fight anymore, masculine men, real men are warriors. Say warriors. Warriors. Come on, brothers, warriors. (laughs) Biblical men are also winners. Say winners. winners. Now, by warriors, I mean we are defenders. We are protectors. 
By winners, I mean that we are disciplined. A real man is disciplined. He's a disciplined person. A third thing that is true of a real man is that he is a worker. Say worker. That means that you are diligent. You are diligent. And we're going to talk about what it really means to be a worker who is diligent. And finally, a real man, somebody you want to marry your daughter off to, is going to be a worshiper. A worshiper. Somebody say amen. Amen. Men, men are warriors. And if you're going to fight until you can't fight anymore, you need to learn how to be a warrior. The Bible says when the Philistines, going back to verse 15, were at war against, again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew faint, say faint. He was weak and exhausted. And Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giants, he had a spear that weighed eight pounds. We already read that. But for your hearing, verse 8, 8, 17 says, And Abishai recognized what was happening, that, that David was about to be killed, swooped in, and he saved David. Now, I want to ask the question, what is a warrior? This word, warrior for us, it's not a contemporary, contemporary word that we often hear in our vernacular. It's not a common word. For many men, when we hear the word warrior, we automatically think the Golden State. Warriors! <laughs> who beat LeBron James, who we don't want in Philadelphia. Swept in four games. Those are warriors. No, I'm not talking about those warriors. The Bible describes a warrior as a man engaged or experienced in war or in the military life. A warrior is a soldier, a champion, a man who is battle-tested, a man who has learned from experience how to go through things without falling apart, a man who will look trouble in the eye and stand and do warfare until the victory is won, a man that knows how to handle himself under pressure. Are you a warrior today, brothers? Too many men are not only mama's boys, but they're daddy's boys. We haven't taught our young men how to be battle-tested. Too many of our men are constantly rescued, and we make excuses for them. But if you're going to be a kind of person who fights until you can't fight anymore, you need to learn how to be a warrior. You got to be battle tested. You need to let your son fail. You need to allow your son to come from behind your apron. You need to allow your son to make decisions under pressure. Somebody say amen. amen. Now, what do warriors do? I'm glad you asked. Warriors fight. They fight for God. The cause of God, the cause of righteousness. Warriors fight for their families and, and for others who can't defend themselves. That's what warriors do. Warriors fight. And because warriors fight, you need to have a fighting spirit. I grew up in North Philadelphia, and I wanted to be the kind of person based on the models that I saw and my cousins and the those who I looked up to, they hurt people. And I wanted to be thought of as somebody who could hurt you. I wanted people to be afraid of me. I wanted them to know how I could hold my hand. We didn't use sticks and all that. It was who could stand 
the longest with their hands. So you must have a fighting spirit. The word of God says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and those that take it, take it by force. And the violent take it by force. Whenever the agenda of God is going forward, whenever you decide, men, that you're going to lead your families and be everything that God has called you to be, the kingdom of God is being taken by force. You can expect that there's going to be opposition. You can expect that the devil is going to raise up. But when he does, the Bible says, whenever the enemy comes in like a flood, God raises up a standard against him. And so in order to fight, you've got to have a fighting spirit. The kingdom of God is not about a nice suit. It ain't about being able to sing good, and that's fine too. But even to be able to stand up and sing, you've got to be able to fight through fear and fight through pride. You've got to have a fighting spirit. Warriors must not be distracted from your assignment. I like it the way uh, Paul says it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. He says, no one engaged in warfare entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. So many men are distracted. We are gifted and talented, but we're distracted. Many of us struggle with the sin of Samson. He was a mighty man with a she weakness. He spent most of his adult life chasing skirts. He was a womanizer. He was Buzz McKinsley. He, he lived to party. He was distracted. And then there are those of us who say in our absence from our family, in the relationships that we never get to develop, we say that we are out earning a living to take care of the ones that we love. But Jesus said to the man who had millions of dollars, who said, now I will enlarge my barns and I will expand my, my economic empire. And then I will lay down and take my ease. Jesus said of that millionaire, you fool. And so we're distracted by chasing fame and fortune and power and significance in the eyes of the world. But warriors are not distracted because we have an assignment and our greatest intention and motivation should be to please him who enlisted us, the one who died that we might have life through his death and resurrection. I'm talking about Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Warriors must not be distracted from their assignment. Here's another thing that warriors do. Warriors must fight for what is right. How do you know what is right when every other minute you turn the news on somebody's lying? I want you to understand something about lying. You don't have to reject the truth to accept the lie. You, I, what I mean, you don't have to deny it. It ain't true. I don't believe it. No. If you don't respond to what is untrue, you have accepted the lie. You have accepted the lie. And so what, what the word of God wants us to do is, one, in order to know what is right from, from what is wrong, you need to know you need to know the word of God. Listen to what the scripture says in Jude 3. It says, behold, while I, was, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, a common salvation, there's only one way to God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? He says, I found it necessary to write you, exhorting you to contend, to fight earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to you. And so what, when we fight, when we fight for what is right, that means that as men, as fathers, as warriors, you need to be fighting for sound doctrine and teaching to be taught to your family, that you go to a church where the truth of God's word is being taught. 
It's all right to have a good time with the music. It's okay that for another level, another devil, all of that. Ain't God good all the time? Hallelujah. Slap 10 people and roll around seven times. Run to the back. Run to all that's fine. You feel good. But it won't change your life because the only thing that's going to change your life is the word. And he says, I want you to contend. I want you to fight. I want you to get upset when you hear things from the Bible that are not true. You must take a stand so that you can train up your children in the way that they should go. Now, you can't train nobody if you're not studying the word of God yourself. The Bible, Paul says, be a workman. Be a, let's be a warrior who studies the word of God so you can rightly divide its truth, accurately cut straight the word of God so you may prove that which is acceptable to God. Warriors, you said you're a warrior, right? Do you fight for what is right? Do you make decisions about what is right based on the objective truth of God, not your emotions, not your circumstances, not your situations? Truth is not relative. It is absolute. It is yay and nay. Did God say it if he didn't? It's, if it disagrees with what God has said, he calls that sin. It doesn't matter who says it and how it will promote your interest. If it doesn't line up with the word of God, you are not contending, fighting for the truth of the word or in the faith if you don't stand with the truth that is revealed in the word of God. Somebody say amen. amen. Warriors must also fight for what is good. What is right and what is good aren't the same. When we talk about what is right, we are talking about the letter of the law. Remember the story of the woman in, in John chapter 8? The Bible says she was caught in the very act of adultery. How many of you know you can't commit adultery by yourself? But they said she was caught in the act of adultery, and the religious leaders brought this woman, disheveled, maybe unclothed, and they brought her into the temple, and she put, they pushed her in front of Jesus, and they said, the law says, the, the word, the righteous, perfect word of the Lord says, if a woman is caught, doesn't say just a woman, if people are caught, individual, because you don't do it by yourself, if people are caught, the, the law says, the letter of the law says that they should be stoned to death. That's the letter of the law. She should have been stoned to death, but not without her partner. So what Jesus did, he could have done what was right. And it would have been right to stone her to death by the letter law, but he did what was good. Here's what Paul says before we explain what Jesus did. He, you, warriors do what must do what is good, right. Paul says, uh, 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 he says, I have fought the good fight. Some things aren't worth fighting for. The good fight is having discernment. The good fight is operating under the control of the Spirit of God and knowing how to act in wisdom. That's why the Lord said, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and he doesn't hold back. We need to be warriors who fight for what is good. Jesus stooped down and he began to write in the sand and then he stood up having written in the sand and he said to those who had the bricks in their hand and they were prepared to do what was right according to the letter of the law and Jesus said, based on grace and mercy, the spirit of the law, that which is good. He said, you who are without sin, let him cast the first stone. The Bible says from the oldest to the youngest, they all dropped their bricks and left. I believe what Jesus was doing was writing in the sin what their sins were. You must be willing to fight for what is good. There's some things that are right that you don't need to say right now. There's some things that, that are right that you need to say it with season and grace. The Bible says, speak the truth in love. You can't just say that. I just got to get it off my mind. I got to say it the way I feel. No, no, no. You got to be a warrior who is gentle who can speak a word in season, a warrior who not only has the Logos word, the factual, unadulterated word of God, you need to know how to have a, a preceding word, a rhema word, that word that Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. That is, in the midst of whatever you're going through, you got to have the right thing to say. That's why you need discernment. Somebody say amen. And so warriors fight for what is right. They fight for what is good. 
They fight. Warriors fight without being distracted. They have a fighting spirit. Warriors also use supernatural armor to defeat the enemy. I always use this verse, but I never read the second part of it. And as I was going through this, it's much too, too much sermon. I know it. Forgive me, brothers. Some of you I won't see for a while. I'm going to finish this today. We're going to get through. But listen to what it said. It said, for our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty to the pulling down of what? Strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity of the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled, when we use the weapons of our warfare that are not carnal, they will pull down strongholds. They will bring every thought under the captivity. That's why we can pray for our president, because we understand that the weapons, one of our weapons is prayer. And the Bible says when we pray for those who are in leadership, we can live a quiet and peaceful life. When we pray for our leadership, that God has ordained the good and the evil, the Bible says that the heart of the king is in the hands of God, like rivers of water, that he turns wherever, wherever he will. Warriors use supernatural power. See, brothers, if it was another man, we could deal. You and me, we ain't going to be getting no long argument. Let's take care of this. One way or the other, and one will come out and the other one won't. That's the way they used to do it. You can't get along. You got to beef with somebody, put you in some boxing glove, let you knock yourselves out. Concussions didn't exist. You know, pre, no pre, you know, no percussion co protocol. You got up off the ground after seeing stars, and if you were there for a while, you just got there for a while, and then you and that person who knocked you out, or you knocked them out, now you're best friends. If that was the kind of enemy we were facing, men, we could deal with that. But the Bible says that the enemy that we're up against. It's spiritual. He is invisible. And he's like a roaring lion who is prowling throughout your family, throughout your life, at your job. You can't see him working through demonic forces. That's why the scripture says you got to put on the whole armor of God, the whole and the entire arm of God. Sometimes I believe as we spend time in fasting and prayer, what God will do, because the Bible says that the, that the, that the devil is like an angel of light. He masquerades. The devil masquerades. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Every now and then what God will do, he will pull the cloak of deception off of the devil, and you will see him in his ugliness. You will see him in his and is evil, and you will recognize that this spirit has been hovering over my house, been attacking my children, been attacking my thought life, been attacking my finances. I thought it was my wife. I thought it was, no, this was Satan himself working through demons. Brothers, we need supernatural armor as warriors because we're fighting against principalities and powers. Warriors use supernatural power. Now, who are the mightiest warriors in the Bible? The two mightiest warriors in all of Scripture. The Old Testament is none other than David himself. He had no equals. And then in the New Testament, I believe the greatest spiritual warrior was Paul the Apostle. When you consider all of the things that he suffered for Christ and never once denied Jesus, he was a great warrior. But I want to focus on David, the kind of warrior David was, and the model that he sets for us as men here today, as fathers. Brothers, we have a great responsibility as we go through this. David, King David, was a role model warrior. The scripture says when David, when, when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his men with him went down to fight. David was a role model. He didn't tell his family, go to church. He went with them to church. He took them to church. He didn't say to his men, do as I say, but not as I do. He was a role model leader. He was a role model warrior. He led by example. Are you a role model, brother, as a warrior? Or is it just about the base? Is it just about God said, submit to your own husband and dance unto the Lord? 
Is that what it's all about? Or are you being a loving servant leader before your, your wife and your family? David was a model warrior. David didn't fight alone, alone. Even though he was the mightiest warrior in the Old Testament, he never fought alone. Uh, uh, not intentionally, that is. David and his men, they were in a thick battle. And David became weak and exhausted, and he was about to be killed by a giant, and he was, he was basically all but dead. But Abishai leaped in, and he took the life of the Philistine and saved the king. I want you to know, brothers, that God never intended for you to do this by yourself. You can't be a, a lone ranger. Even a lone ranger had Tonto. <laughs> the Bible says, bear ye one another's burdens. We need the, the strong. Sometimes I need someone to hold up my hands. The Bible says two are better than one. Iron sharpens iron. We need somebody that can talk to us when we feel like giving up. We need people to come beside us when we feel discouraged. Anybody ever feel discouraged? Brothers, you can be honest about it. It don't make you weak because you're struggling. It makes you spiritual because you want to grow. And when we're, when we're spiritual, the Bible says we will confess our sins one to another. We will share the load. God never told you to be the Lone Ranger. Who do you have speaking in your life? Who are the men that are going into battle with you in prayer for your family, in prayer for your sons and your daughters? Who's praying with you? Who's walking through those difficult times with you men? David didn't fight alone. If he had fought alone, he would have died. I want you to know a lot of men aren't in church today. Because no one has connected with them. No one has taken the time to establish a relationship. The only time many churches ever contact anybody that isn't coming to church is when you stop tithing. And they will say, you haven't tithed. And if you want to be a member in good standing, when the church meets so at the time, that one time of the year where we get to fuss and fight and act like heathens, you got to keep your ties current. But at this church, we want to honor the Lord because a warrior, in order to fight and be effective, you need others to come alongside you. Somebody say amen. amen. David also fought until he couldn't fight anymore. This is a, an excellent principle on leadership, but we want to talk about it from the principle. Everything that I'm saying could be a book, and I'm trying to get there. So David's men, they said, listen. They told him, you will never go to battle with us again. You, no more David. And so even when he wanted to put on his little gear and act like he wanted to fight, they said, nope. There ought to come a time, and there will come a time, hopefully, where you've put in enough deposits in the lives of your wife and your children where they will be able to say, Dad, sit down today. Dad, sit down. <laughs> We're going to take care of this today. Or more than that, you have taken care and protected and defended. There's going to come a day when you're going to need to be protected and defended and people look out for you as your advocate. That's the kind of dividends that David had paid into the lives of his men. They said, you can't fight anymore. What you can do is more important than what you were doing on the battlefield. We want you to serve in another way, David. Now, I don't believe any of us have reached that point right now where we can say we fought until we don't need to fight anymore. But in David's case, his men said, David, your position as the spiritual covering, he said, lest the lamp of Israel go out, the guidepost, the, the spiritual righteous director that God has placed in our life. If something happens to you, we will lose our way because you are the instrument that God is using and we don't want to lose our way so you can't be killed. We're going to protect you at all costs, David. I want you to understand when you apply that to fatherhood, if a father is taken out, I want you to know that the lamp of that home has gone out. The path that directs them to God has been lost. That the covering that protected them from the, the fiery darts of Satan is now no longer there. That's why when the devil attacks the home, he attacks men. That's why the social welfare system, they don't care if women are on welfare as long as the man is not in the home. 
Because it's a man that will raise a man. And God has placed the responsibility of giving vision to the family, to men. And so when there's no vision, the Bible says, the people, the children, the wives, they perish. Or wives end up having to operate in anointings that God never intended for them to have. The load that they're carrying was never intended for them. David fought until he couldn't fight anymore. His men recognized the role of the warrior over the nation. David was essential. We're not going to let the person that's feeding our family, and in this case, if it's the pastor, we're going to do everything that we can to prevent anything from happening to his family, that he can be so distracted and involved and, and never available to his own family that his family ends up falling apart while he's feeding other people's families. We don't want the, the lamp of Israel to go out. The lamp of Israel, that's how highly they esteemed David as the voice of God to them. Here's another thing. Masculinity means what a real man is. He's a winner. Brothers say, I'm a winner. I'm a winner. You know what that means? That means that you're a disciplined person. I want you to know, the truth be told, that discipline in men is woefully lacking, and I'm not going to stand here today to chastise the men. We get too much of that by how we are portrayed today on TV. We are weak. We're bumbling, stumbling idiots that can't make a decision, and we need a superhero as a woman to rescue us because God knows we can't do it ourselves. That's the portrayal of a man on TV. He's indecisive. He's unmotivated. The ladies are the weightlifters. They are the ones who endure. And the men are trying to catch up and just not upset anybody. We just want to be a flower on the wall. But that's not the portrayal of a real man in the Bible. And ladies, if you marry that kind of man, we call those kind of men wimps. And you will be super miserable because you have to tell them what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and it may be cute while you're dating, but you don't want a wimp. You want a man. Somebody say amen. amen. Now listen to what the scripture said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that a race, in a race, all runners run, but only one runs the prize? Run in such a way that you get the prize. Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training, discipline. They do not get it. They do it to get a crown. They got a goal that will, will not last. They will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run as someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body. I buffet my body, discipline my body to make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Four quick things. Four quick things, men. How do you fight until you can't fight anymore and be a winner, be disciplined? Here are four characteristics of a disciplined person. The first thing that's true of a disciplined person is that he focuses on his goals. Paul says, run to win. That's the goal. If you don't know where you're going, men, how are you going to lead somebody? How are you going to lead somebody? Am I right about that? That means you're unprepared. Men must understand the importance of living on purpose. And unfortunately, because we haven't had father figures, too many of us were not instructed on how to be focused. We're all over the place. We're still growing up and we're 60 years old. And we still don't know what we want to be. You ought to know what your gifts are and your talents are. And the calling of God on your life will be based on the gifts and talents that he gave you. And you ought to be running towards the towards the finish line based on those gifts. Woman, if you are trying 
to develop a relationship with a man who, hasn't, who isn't focused, who doesn't have goals for life. He cannot take care of you. He is not ready to be a husband and a father. Winners fight smarter rather than harder. Paul says, I don't swing as punching the air. I don't waste time. I'm not a procrastinator. I'm so sick and tired of hearing people, I was going to. I should have. I could have. I would have. And I think I do. No, 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 no. Stop living in your past, procrastinating in your present, and then, and then being fear, fearful of the future because you're living not smarter but harder. Paul says, I don't waste time. It ain't about chilling all the time. It ain't about just working to get paid to chill. Not a man, not a biblical man. Okay, okay, we move on. <laughs> Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit rather than your flesh. Paul says, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. Are you being led as it's now? When a man is being led by the Spirit, you will see the fruit of the Spirit. And if you don't know where that is, look it up in the Bible. Paul says, I buff it. I make my body my slave. I, my body don't tell me when to get up. It don't tell me when to lay down. It doesn't tell me who to lay down with. It doesn't tell me who not to lay down. I surrender to the Spirit of God. You know how you learn how to do that? By praying and fasting and, and, and committing the Word of God to memory and obeying it. The Bible says, then you become like a tree that is planted by rivers of water, and whatever you do will prosper. You will not walk in the counsel of the God because you are a person who is living under the authority and the power of the Spirit of God. That's a disciplined person. You're not living by your feelings. You don't want to be dealing with a man who's more emotional than you, who falls apart. I don't know how many times I've been in the room, somebody died, and the biggest dudes come in the room, and they come up in there, and I'm saying, now they're going to calm the women down. Everything's going to be fine. Nobody's going to throw blows. And then they <laughs> literally pass out on the floor. And they don't say, oh, they go, ah! And I'm saying, are you serious? And then the women are fanning them. And I'm walking with timber, timber. We have made our boys sissies. We have raised up a generation of young men that can't take anything. Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Finish well. Paul says, lest I get to the finish line by not buffeting my body, by not focusing on my goals, not, by not uh, working harder, smarter, not harder. He said, if, we don't, if I'm not disciplined, I will become disqualified because my life, not my mouth, my life, people look at how I live, and they say, he's a hypocrite. Disciplined people don't start well. You finish well. That means that if you make a commitment, you give your word, men, you keep it. If you're part of a ministry, that's the other thing. The way you know when people love God is not because they tell you. You'll see it. They'll be faithful. They'll be men and women of their word. That's the kind of person you want to marry. Because they finish well, they don't just start well. Everybody's in love when they first get started. Finish well, be faithful. Here's, men are also workers. Say workers. That means you're diligent. What does it mean to be diligent? Did you ask that? I know you did. It means to be a hard worker, eager to work. Thorough. Are you thorough? Meticulous, attentive. A man looks for something to do. If something needs to be done, he's trying to figure out, how can I get it fixed? If I can't get it fixed, I will get somebody to do it. 
Some people say, well, I work every day. I ain't lazy. You can be lazy working every single day. <laughs> because you're looking at the clock and or you just do enough to keep your boss out of your case. That's lazy. Some of us, we are just very diligent and eager and thorough in the areas where we're interested, but we are sluggards when it comes to spiritual discipline. We don't read our Bible. We don't pray. We're not consistent with fellowship. That's lazy. You want to know, how you going to know if you're marrying the right person? Look at their fruit. We got some sisters up here that love Jesus. And he'll, well, I'm looking for the, the ball yard and the billful, and I'm looking for the bed. How are you going to know if you like it unless you try? We got so, our, our views about marriage are right out of the world. We, we didn't read the manual of scandal before it even came out. We didn't read how to, how to commit murder and get away, how to murder your marriage and get away with it. Now, how should you labor? How should a man labor? How do you know when you're talking about a masculine man? Well, he must be masculine. Listen how deep his voice sounds. I was with a lady the other day, and I didn't know she was a lady until I saw her, because she sure had some bass up in that voice. Man, she could have, boy, she could have beat Melvin in the temptation. Ooh, mama was a role. But she wasn't trying. That just, that was. I wanted to say to her, when your son grows up, if he's half the man that you were, he's going to be something. He's going to be a mighty. <laughs> Here's how a man should work. He should keep a full-time, steady job. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 says, if a man won't work, if a, he doesn't say if a woman, if a man does not work, I don't know how many times I see people outside of Wawa working at Begin. That ain't no job. He shouldn't eat. He shouldn't eat. And so a man who is masculine, who is really modeling the kind of spirit that will fight until he can't fight anymore, he will keep a full-time job. He's not always bouncing from here to here. That's an evidence of a, of, a, of a maturity. Here's another thing. Keep a job that enables you to provide for your wife and family as a primary breadwinner. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 says, a man that will not provide for his family is worse than an infidel. Treat him like he's an unbeliever. Here's that, what that means. What do you mean? I got to be the primary bearer? That, I'm the messenger. I'm just carrying the, the mail. The man should be the primary breadwinner. What I mean by that, if my darling wife said tomorrow, honey, I ain't going back to that place. I, 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 I quit. I should be earning enough money that if my wife never worked another day, I can take care of my family. That also means that if I croaked and died, not croaked and died. If you, I'm sorry for the. If I died, and I have demonstrated masculinity, a man that fights until he can't fight anymore, my family will be taken care of. Amen. So, often what men do today, they don't just get married to a female. They're looking for somebody who can pay the bills. But God says the, one, the wife's primary responsibility is to be a keeper in her home and to love her husband and love her own children. If that's all, she, and it's not all she did, that is the highest, one of the highest callings that a woman could ever have is to stay at home and build your children in the Lord. And a husband should be willing to say, we will trust the Lord. So now the cable goes off. Now the cell phones are retracted, or, or et cetera, et cetera. We got to be willing to make some adjustments. But whatever it takes, honey, I'm going to take care of you and mine. And if you don't earn that kind of money, you need to be looking for a better job. Men, you should be looking for a better job. You should be looking for a better job. Somebody say amen. amen. There's so much stress on our marriages. 
Because even when our women work full-time jobs, we expect them to still be the keeper of the home and to take care of us. You know what I mean, brothers. With a smile. Better be a smile. Your family should be able to live off your income. You should be looking for a better-paying job. Men should be continuing to develop their gifts. You should be continuing to develop good. One of the ways that a woman feels protected and secured is that you can say to her, honey, I really appreciate that you're working every day. I do. But you need to understand, if I have to take care of us, you can rely on me to do that. Amen. Amen. You know why you should be able to do that, men? Because you shouldn't just be dating women and sleeping with them and bouncing from here to here. You ought to be preparing for marriage because Paul says it's better to marry than to burn. That means that most men need to have a wife. And since you need to be having a wife, you need to be focused. Because when you're not focused and you're sleeping around, you are in sin and you're hurting women and giving the rest of us a bad reputation. And then we fall into the category of abusers, of authoritarians, and arrogant. You should be preparing for a wife. You ought to be saving money so that you can do like Brother Seth did. When he got married, he moved his wife into a house. A house. For this reason, a man shall leave. A man shall leave. You had a, you're leaving to pre prepare. So before you even get married, you ought to have enough savings so that if, if, if your wife is finally is blessed to have a child, you've got money to live off of. You shouldn't just be dating to have fun. You should be dating for marriage, for a wife. And marriage is not the worst thing that ever happened to you other than being diagnosed with a terminal disease. The Bible says that he that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Men are workers. They keep jobs that enable them to provide for their family. They're full. They keep, they're steady at work. And then you should be developing your gifts. Women are the ones that are going back to college, going back to school. And men, we're not, you know, we don't seem to understand that the scripture says, cultivate, stir up the gifts that is within you that have been processed and confirmed through the laying on of hands. How are you developing your skills, men, to become all that the Lord wants you to be? Now, here's the final thing. Are you still with me? Amen. I didn't hear the brothers, but I know they with me. Men are warriors, men are workers, men are winners, men are worshipers. Here's the two verses that capsulize, cap, uh, uh, captures what it really means to be a worshiper. Because the first thing that we think, got his hands up, see that brother running around the church? He also got 10 kids from different women. God love you. Speaking in tongues, he must love God. No. He just don't have enough money to pay for the membership at the Y, so he takes off, he does his exercise at the church. Praise is public. Worship is private. Now watch this. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 38, it says, and here's how you can know that a man is a worshiper. Here's it. That's not a part of the scripture. Those are my words. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Say first and greatest commandment. First and, greatest commandment. and the second is like unto the first. Love your neighbor as your who? Yourself. All the laws of the prophet hang on those two. All of the 10 in the 622 variations of the law hang on the two laws. Love God, love man. Vertical, horizontal. You love God, vertically, horizontal, will be fine. Now watch this. Here's what that means. Here's what it means to be a worshiper. It means to love God first. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God should be the most important, significant person in your life. Not your girlfriend, not your boyfriend, not your job, not yourself. The Bible says you should even be willing to hate mother, father, sister, and brother. That means your relationship. See how much you love your parents? Your relationship with your parents in comparison to God should seem like hatred when it compares to God's your relationship to God, your love for God. 
You meet a man who loves God like that, when God is first in his life, and, and, and he going, you know, you know God is first in his life. So love God first. Love God fully with all of your heart. Break a sweat. Have passion for God with every fiber, with every ounce of energy that you have. You should be developing your love relationship with the Lord. Love him fully. Grow in love with your relationship with God. So love God first, love him fully. Love him fervently. That means to have a passion, have a pulse for God. It ought to bother you when people use the name of the Lord in vain. It ought to bother you when all of you, and there ought to be some humor that, that, that you don't listen to anymore. There ought to be some songs that grieve your spirit because you have a passion for God. Somebody was trying to sell me some of their rap uh, music. I ain't even opposed to rap. Some of it's good, and I just, I just oh, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I like music. But everything that you listen to, the Bible says, but shun profane and vain babblings because it increases to more ungodliness. What happens is what you put into your spirit, when you are under pressure, when you're under fire, when you're on the battlefield, when you've got to fight back, guess what's going to come out? What you have put in is going to come out. And if all you got is profanity, all you got is violence, all you got is rage, that's what's going to come out. Love God fervently. Love God fruitfully, fruitfully, fruitfully. The evidence of loving God with all your heart is found in the second commandment. Love thy neighbor as yourself. Here's how you know that you actually love God the way you should as a worshiper. A worshiper loves God and loves people. You can't love anybody. You can't love a man or a woman if you don't love yourself. If you don't love yourself, you can't love God. You should love yourself. And loving God, finally, loving God. Jesus, how do you say you love me, but you don't do what I say? If somebody says that they love God and they don't do what Scripture says, how many of you know we're none of us are perfect? But when you're saved, you have a hunger and thirst. Christians love the Bible. Christians love the Word. I know there are times I listen to people, I don't even want to hear the guy. I don't, he just don't sound right. But the words always sound good. I don't care if the dude is you know, making the paint fall off the wall. He's so boring. But the Word, the Word is like fire shut up in my bones. The Word just you know, just simmers into your spirit and it causes you to respond. When you love God, you will love his word. And his commandments, the Bible says, will not be cumbersome. My question to you is, are you a worshiper? Do you really love God? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Are you really saved or are you simply in church? A man who fights until he can't fight anymore. He's a warrior. He's a winner. He's disciplined. He's a defender. He's a winner. He's a winner. He's a worker. He's diligent. He's a worshiper because he's devoted to God. Say he's devoted to God. Stand with me. I really enjoyed Arnold Schwarzenegger. When the, when the trilogy, the series of The Terminator came out. First, he came out as the bad guy, then he comes out as the good guy. But The Terminator was created with a specific purpose. Because the, the purpose had to do with generations. If the robots were going to rule the world, are humans. And so in order to prevent humans from ruling the world, he was assigned to kill the person that was going to give birth to the man that would be the leader of the humans. You saw, some of you saw that. And the Terminator would fight until it couldn't fight anymore to accomplish, because it understood its mission would affect generations. The world would be impacted by the success or failure of the Terminator. There was no option. He had to kill the potential a prospect of the person that was going to be the leader of the human, human race. They burned the, the Terminator. They melted him. They froze him. They blew him up. They smashed him. They electrocuted him. 
He was left with nothing but an eyeball and a piece of an arm. He was still bouncing and reaching. And, and, and until he just collapsed and died, he fought until he couldn't fight anymore because his assignment was to affect generations. Brothers, we need some terminators up in here. We need some brothers who say, oh, yes, my family, my marriage may be messed up, but it's my messed up marriage. My kids may be half crazy, but they're my crazy kids. And I may be half crazy, but I belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if I got to crawl to save my family, Whatever I got to do to honor God, to do what he's called me to do for my family, I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight until I can't fight anymore. Father, we thank you.